Section six of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three The Constitution of the Animal and Plant Kingdoms, Part one. The intelligent foreigner visiting a country which to him is practically a terra incognita and desirous of acquainting himself as fully as possible with the constitution of the land wherein he intends to sojourn would contrive before departing from his native coasts to gain some adequate idea of the new country itself its government and laws its social political and religious condition its geographical and geological features and its general history in so far as these details were necessary for the comprehension of what he expected to see and hear during his foreign tour if to the details of its present condition he was able to add information concerning its past if he could trace its history along the lines of centuries and discover how this event or that occurrence had tended to mould the country and its constitution into its existing form his appreciation of the strange land as presented to his view to-day would tend to become of still more complete nature and if lastly from his study of the past and present of the foreign territory he ventured to indulge in any reflections on its possible or probable future and on its chances of further development or possible decline such reflections would possess every claim to rank as rational thoughts deducible from his knowledge of the land as it was and is the parallelism between the process of acquiring an adequate knowledge of a foreign state and that of gaining some idea of the constitution of the worlds of living beings can readily be shown to be of the closest possible description the most superficial acquaintance with the study of zoology and botany if carried out in any fashion worthy the name of a scientific and intellectual exercise must proceed along lines which follow out in all essential details the pathways whereby we gain an intelligent idea of a foreign land no study of animals or of plants can be satisfactorily carried out without at least a brief preliminary discussion of the constitution of the worlds of life and without some acquaintance with their mutual relationships and their fundamental characters in the light of recent researches concerning the why and wherefore of the animal and plant kingdoms such preliminary knowledge becomes not merely of high importance but of absolutely essential nature in the days before evolution was anything but a name and ere natural selection had become a striking reality to the biological mind such knowledge formed the basis of every study of zoology and botany worthy the name of a scientific investigation today when the burning questions of biology center around the evolution of the living universe and include in their sway and limits the details of the development and structure alike of man and monad it need hardly be urged that some acquaintance with the general constitution of the animal and plant worlds is absolutely necessary for the intelligent comprehension of all that is interesting in the study of life if the making of england to quote the expressive phraseology of a historical authority be regarded as at once the summation and foundation of all knowledge of the genesis of the english race so the fundamental nature of animals and plants and a knowledge of their existing relations may be legitimately viewed as the only sound preparation for a knowledge of the great questions that deal with the becoming and making of living things 
the most cursory survey of the worlds of animal and plant life leaves as the prevailing impression on the observer's mind the idea of extraordinary variety and diversity of form color and habitat from the grand sequoia or wellingtonia of california to the humble moss that covers a rock the gray lichens of the walls or the minute algae that color the pools there is an endless variety in the ranks of the plant kingdom no less distinctly is the diversity seen in the hordes of animal life from the giant quadrupeds that find a home in the tropical jungles through the teeming life of the waters to the insect life that everywhere surrounds us and to the animacular swarms that find a world in the water drop there is to be viewed endless and well-nigh undeterminable variation in every feature of existence indeed so wide is the range of the naturalist's sphere of observation that one might be readily tempted to believe that save for the one common belonging and possession of life there seems no bound of union which may link together the hosts that people the earth the variety in question tends somewhat to puzzle the uninitiated observer when he attempts to form some adequate ideas regarding the relations of animals to each other or concerning the bonds that connect the apparently diverse forms of plant life it is this variety also which in some degree tends to discourage the popular study of natural history the apparent hopelessness of overtaking in a human lifetime even a small portion of the inexhaustible fields of research having its own share in the work of discouragement and in demonstrating the theoretical vanity of human knowledge but the student of living nature is destined to find a speedy and satisfactory solution of many of these preliminary difficulties at the very outset of his studies the first tendency of scientific investigation is to correlate the objects of its research or in other words to effect a classification and arrangement of subjects destined for investigation when the child groups the objects by which he is surrounded into animals vegetables and minerals he is unconsciously laying the foundations of a scientific system and in reality the naturalist simply enlarges the conceptions of the child when he shows that differences as fundamental in their nature as those the child learns to note can be determined between the varied tribes of animals and the equally diverse groups of plants prior to the time of cuvier naturalists concerned themselves chiefly with the description of the different species of animals and plants and with the determination of the characters whereby one species was distinguished from another the writings of linnaeus for example are largely composed of such descriptions and if we add to such details others dealing with the habits and distribution of animals and plants we shall have completed the enumeration of the chief aims of naturalists in bygone days the popular zoology and botany of today which do not concern themselves with matters beyond form and the recognition of species or the description of habits reflect in a very characteristic and exact fashion the natural history studies of the past it should be remembered however that the classic naturalists among whom aristotle stands out conspicuously dived somewhat more deeply into the history of the animal kingdom than their modern successors but it may be fairly assumed that the ordinary naturalist prior to cuvier's time concerned himself not so much with the structure or morphology of living beings as with the description of their external forms 
peculiarities, habits, and habitations. With Cuvier, a new and higher era of natural history study dawned. Linnaeus had mapped out the animal world into 1. Mammalia, 2. Aves, or birds, 3. Amphibia, reptiles, frogs, etc., 4. Pisces, or fishes, 5. Insecta, insects, spiders, etc., and 6. Vermes, or worms, this latter group being, like that of all the Linnaean insects, a most heterogeneous division, and including all known and lower forms of animal life, from the worms themselves downwards as far literally as the senses could reach. It has well been remarked that such a classification as the foregoing possesses a representative in the vocabulary of well-nigh every language. In this view, it might be maintained that a popular conception of a unity of animals underlying their obvious diversity was early formed in the human mind. This is undoubtedly true, since the division of the animal world into beasts, birds, fishes, insects, and worms is a step in the construction of animal types, to one or other of which any animal may be referred. But the system in question exhibits, after all, but little advance on the classification of childhood, and it serves, moreover, to indicate very cursorily indeed the scientific and further delineation of the animal constitution. Lamarck, whose name is associated with views concerning the transformation and evolution of species, contributed a very decided addition to the knowledge of the constitution of the animal world when, about the close of last century, he showed that the beasts, birds, reptiles, and fishes, instead of being regarded as distinct and unconnected divisions of animals, might be grouped together to form a large and characteristic division of the kingdom. He pointed out that each and all of these animals, as he knew them, possessed, firstly, a spine or backbone. Within this spine, whereof the skull formed merely a front expansion, the nervous system was contained as within a tube whilst below that system and contained within the body itself, as bounded, say, by the ribs, were the heart, digestive system, and other organs. Lamarck, commenting upon this arrangement of parts, which a glance at the carcass of a sheep, as vertically bisected in the butcher shop, will illustrate, demonstrated that no other animals save mammals, birds, reptiles, and fishes possessed such a disposition of their organs. The worm or the insect, for instance, possesses a body we may legitimately compare with the lower tube of the fish or beast, since neither the worm nor insect has a spine containing a nervous system. Hence Lamarck, taking his chief character from the spine or backbone, composed of separate bones or vertebrae, named the beasts, birds, reptiles, and fishes the vertebrata whilst all other animals became accordingly known as invertebrata. That Lamarck's discovery and his subsequent arrangement of the animal world into these two leading divisions marked a distinct era in zoology, no one can doubt. Best of all, his deduction laid the foundation of the method which, a little later, that is, about 1795, Cuvier so successfully enunciated and followed out to a practical result. Other hands, in addition, labored at the scientific edifice, which was practically completed when Cuvier laid before the world his elementary scheme of the history of animals, and showed that at least three common types or plans could be instituted amongst the invertebrate animals. 
placed in tabular order then the main outlines of the animal world according to cuvier might be thus rendered one vertebrata backboned animals fishes frogs reptiles birds and mammals two mollusca soft-bodied animals cuttlefishes and shellfish at large three articulata jointed animals insects crustaceans worms etc four radiata rayed animals starfishes corals jellyfishes zoophytes and all lower animals cuvier's own words expressive of the nature of these types may be quoted Quote, it will be found that there exist four principal forms four general plans if it may thus be expressed on which all animals appear to have been modeled and the ulterior divisions of which under whatever title naturalists may have designated them are merely slight modifications founded on the development or addition of certain parts unquote. it may be added that the distinguished embryologist von baer attacking the problems of animal form from the standpoint of development and watching the phases observable in the early history of animals as they advanced from the egg towards their perfect forms came to the same conclusion as the great french anatomist according to von baer also there were four types or plans in the animal world the distinctive nature of the type to which any given animal belonged being indicated at an early stage in its development so that as early as the beginning of the present century it became clear to the minds of naturalists that instead of each animal being built up on a type peculiar to itself it fell into one or other of four groups in a word it was found to possess a broad and fundamental plan or type of structure with which a greater or less number of other animals agreed to render the type constitution of the animal world plainer and more readily appreciated we may select one or two examples by way of illustrating also how with the increase of knowledge since cuvier's day the original types have remained stable in some respects whilst they have undergone modifications in others no two animals can well appear more varied in form nature appearance and habits and inferentially in structure likewise than a lobster and a butterfly the aerial habits of the one contrast very markedly with the slow aquatic life of the other whilst the general constitution of the former appears to be separated by antipodean differences from that of the other are there any bounds of common nature which can link together beings so diverse and can the butterfly and the lobster be shown to possess any relationships in common are questions which it is reserved for the scientific but plainly understood deductions of zoology to answer the superficial examination of the lobster would show that its body consists essentially of a series of some twenty joints each possessing a pair of appendages modeled despite their apparent differences on one and the same plan so that although the amalgamated joints of the animal's head and chest are seemingly different from those of its tail the zoologist could readily show the uniformity of the series by a comparatively simple dissection wherein aided by the knowledge of the animal's development legs nippers jaws feelers and even eye stalks would be referred to modifications of one and the same type furthermore 
our dissection of the lobster would show that whilst its heart lies on its back its digestive system runs through the middle line of its frame and its nervous system in the characteristic form of an essentially double chain of nerve knots lies on the floor of its body so that we might diagrammatize with strict accuracy the essential build of a lobster's body by constructing a jointed figure wherein the heart lay the highest the nervous system the lowest and the digestive system between the two now this figure it may be remarked would accurately represent every known lobster it would also stand for the essential structure of every crab which is merely a tailless lobster and of every shrimp barnacle water flea slater and a host of allied animals as well turning now to the butterfly we should discover from even a rough examination of the insect's frame that it possesses an essentially similar disposition of parts to those of the lobster the butterfly's heart lies on its back its digestive system occupies the middle position and its nervous system lies on the floor of the body and moreover consists of the same knotted and double chain we see in the lobster again the appendages of the butterfly body are in pairs and resemble those of the lobster in all essential particulars although they are less numerous in the adult state at least so that beyond and beneath all differences in appearance form and habits material as these differences appear to be we discover the great truth that both animals are built up on the same fundamental type in a word the ideal diagram we have constructed of the lobster's body will serve equally well to indicate the broad features of butterfly structure and further as all crustaceans can be shown to possess bodies modeled on the lobster type so all insects numbering many thousands of species may without exception be referred to the butterfly type from which declarations a third may naturally be drawn namely that the bodies of all insects and all crustaceans are built up on one and the same fundamental plan nor is this all the diagram which as we have seen conveys to our mind the essential features in the anatomy of a lobster and a butterfly and which through these animals presents us with a general idea of every insect and every crustacean can be shown to possess a more extended application still every spider scorpion and mite agrees with the lobster and insect in its essential structure and every centipede and millipede likewise has its heart above its nervous system below and its digestive system in the middle of its body whilst if we lastly examine the worms themselves we shall find that our diagram still serves to show the main details of the structure of that extensive class in this way therefore the language of the zoologist becomes clear when he states that all of the foregoing animals constitute a type of animals the type in question is in fact cuvier's articulata or as it is rendered in modern zoology that of the annulosa and there remains yet one important addition to the zoological statement namely that no other animals save the annulosa or articulates exhibit the arrangement of parts just noted the heart above and the nervous system below are characters as distinctive of these animals as is the particular impress on coins of the country or territory from which they were issued End of section 6, chapter 3, part 1.